What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Hope everybody's having safe holidays so far, safe travels, uh, wherever you may be headed. Uh, today, we are chatting with Tamara Ryan, the uh, CEO of the Women's Bean Project, about ending the cycle of poverty uh, for women who have been chronically unemployed due to addiction and or incarceration. The conversation really goes into a bunch of different directions, but mainly uh, the idea was to speak about the Women's Bean Project and how it uses a traditional business model, essentially as its, its, its sort of nonprofit structure to really scale the ability to, to, hire, to hire women and change their lives. And like Tamara says, when you change a woman's life, you usually change their family's life. And it's a really sort of in-depth conversation about how growing up maybe in a certain education system or being raised in a certain way and entering the prison system at an early age really, really, really sets back the ability for, for these women to, to be skilled, right, to be trained, um, to have any idea of, of what being in the workforce is like. Um, a lot of these women that, that come through the project are reading at a third grade level. So part of what the Women's Being Project does is they take these women through a seventh month program where they get trained on computer training, time allocation, how to show up on work on time, what's that like to, to be consistent and be accountable for, for yourself, and a bunch of other skill sets that are used to get them placed in long-term jobs when they're finished that, uh, that program. Um, but the Women Beans Project, it, what's really important about it is that these women are seeing how the business environment works. So Project sells coffee, tea, they make lentil soup, they make popcorn now, they do a bunch of different items that you would normally sort of, but dog treats too, that you would normally maybe buy at the grocery store, right? And and they are at the grocery store, they're at grocery stores across the country. So you can go usually into your local um, grocery and find Women's Bean Project um, products there. Um, so you can support what they are doing through through everyday shopping, like, like we talk about all the time. But Tamara is also a former partner and board member at the Social Ventures Partners in, in Denver, and she currently serves serves as the part-time CEO and interim CEO for the Social Enterprise Alliance. A lot of you may have heard of the Social Enterprise Alliance. If you haven't, um, check them out. She's also in the Council of Advisors of the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver. Tamara was also named in the top 25 most powerful women in Colorado as part of the American Enterprise Institute Leadership Network. She was a presenter at TEDx Mile High. Tamara also wrote a book called The Third Law, which she highlights the societal obstacles of marginalized women and, and how difficult it is to overcome and change their lives. So it's it's a really great conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. As always, if you have any questions, grant at callsartist.com. And I hope you guys have a, like I said, great holiday, great weekend, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, bye. But usually I, I like to start with, with uh, individuals' journeys on how they sort of get to where they are and you know doing a little bit of research on on you and the Women's Bean Project, it, it seems to be um, a love affair now for a really long time. Um, but do you want to start even before that on how you were even introduced to, and then eventually how you got associated with it and, and kind mm -hmm. of the timeline of maybe from college or or, or after that in, into sort of being the CEO now? Well, my journey was has not been a straight one, but I suppose that's the case for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I actually had two science degrees. Uh, my undergraduate degree is kinesiology, and then I thought I wanted to be a researcher, so I went to get my master's degree in physiology, mm -hmm. and, you know, a thought that I'd continue on, and then I realized that that research 
mentality is not really my personality. So I decided I was going to go get a job, like be a real grown up. Right. And so I moved to Chicago for my first job and I got this great opportunity to work for a company that was a subsidiary of Rush Medical Center. Okay. And we would take ideas out of the medical center and take them to market. And that was, it was great because of my science background, because I could talk to doctors and scientists and, you know, have the right language. But in that job, I got to become a marketing person and do product development and really sort of tap this creative side that I'd always had, but didn't think about doing it professionally. So that set me on a path of being a marketer. And um, I was, I had moved back to Colorado. I'm, I'm a fifth generation Coloradan. So I moved back here because I just missed it living in the Midwest. And I um, learned about, I was working for a tech company and it was a really cool time from 99 to 2003 mm, when yeah. it was just, you know, this boom and the ideas and the, you know, the energy was so amazing. And yet I was working for a company that wasn't based in Colorado. And so they didn't really have a connectedness to the local community. And I, I think I, it was at that time I realized that when you decide to make a community your home, you're really making a commitment to that community to make it better. Right. And so even just thinking about how I could do that and keep my day job, but how I could do that sort of led me to becoming a partner in social venture partners. And that is a model where partners pool their funds and then give grants to organizations based on their collective investment strategy or what kind of organizations they want to work with. In that work, I got much more connected into the community and I learned about women's bean projects because I uh, was handed a bean soup. Mm, and, mm -hmm. and I remember that m moment when I thought, you know what, I just love this idea that there is this business and the better the business does, the more the mission is advanced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I sort of put that in the back of my mind. And then fast forward a couple of years, they were looking for Women's Bean Project was looking for somebody to be on their sales and marketing committee. And again, I thought this is, you know, a perfect way for me to give back to the community. And so I began to volunteer. And you know, in a lot of ways, Women's Bean Project is a marketer's dream come true because there yeah. is this work that is being done, the lives being changed, and yet there's this tangible evidence of that work. Mm -hmm. Our on All of our products are sealed with a sticker that says lovingly handmade by, and it's signed by a woman who's in the program. And so not only do you get the sense that there's work being done, you, you actually get, you know that there's a person behind it. And I think, and so I think it was, it's just a really great marriage of doing good and, and having a business. So I did that volunteering for about six months and the position of CEO came open and I thought I knew the perfect candidate for the job. And that was my girlfriend, Sarah. And huh. so I tried to talk her into applying for the job until finally she said, if you think it's so great, why aren't you applying? <laughs> And my first reaction was, you know, I'm not a nonprofit person. You know, that's your thing, not my thing. And right, she right. said, you know, it's not, it's a business. Right. And she was right, of course. And well, we know how it turned out. That was 16 and a half years ago. <laughs> well, I think so, it was the, and she still it, reminds me of that. No, I think, I think it's a great distinction that, that she made because I think when we talk about social enterprises, it can be defined 
I mean, there really kind of isn't really a definition, right? By by law or by by community, it's sort of yeah. It, it sort of has the freedom to be a nonprofit, be a business, be a hybrid model, which you know it really seems like the the Women's Bean Project is more of that that really sort of hybrid model that approaches it as a business sort of mentality from right like Absolutely, an e-commerce yeah. website and the technology that that it runs on and but then there's also the the nonprofit side of it obviously where people could donate and it's tax deductible and the yeah. impact that it's making with, with, on women with with jobs and and so forth so i think it's a great distinction she made kind of early on because now we see um social enterprises kind of coming everywhere right they're they're coming yeah. from all over the world now with different business models or different nonprofit models but yeah. it, it's it's interesting because you guys have been kind of innovating for a long time now <laughs> you know yeah, it, we're the like model the OG of social 100% <laughs> yeah 100% i was thinking the same thing i was like wow it's it's this has sort of been around um for a really long time you know was that yeah we were so, founded in 1989 yeah, and, and even back then, so you came on board, what year was that when you, so 2003, yeah, 2003. was yeah. the model the same as it is now? What has it, has it matured um, over time? Well, it's had to mature, I think. Um, it, we were founded by a woman who was, had gone back to school in her late 50s and was getting her master's in social work. Mm-hmm. What she, as a part of getting her master's degree, she was embedded in a, um, a nonprofit that was a daytime homeless shelter for women and kids. Mm-hmm. And so women would use the services of the shelter and because they didn't have a job. They didn't have anywhere to go during the day. She was there for a whole school year. So she saw that women would come and use the services. Then they'd leave because they'd get a job. But the same women kept coming back over and over again. And so it was clear that they were they might have the opportunity or ability to get a job, but they didn't have the skills to keep it. And she thought, well, if I could teach them to work by actually working, that mm-hmm. would be the cure for poverty. Mm-hmm. She invested $500 over her own money and bought beans and put two women to work making our first product, which was 10 bean soup. Wow. And so it really, that first year on that $500 investment, it was the 1989 holiday season, they made $6,100. And I think that before that, they didn't really know how much potential was in that. But wouldn't it be great if we could all have that kind of return on investment? Right. <laughs> you know, that percentage. <laughs> uh, but so the idea was there from the beginning. What I will say is the first, I guess I came in in, you know, year 14. In the first 14 years or so, it was very much run more with the mission and the business was something that was kind of done on the side. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the shift that needed to happen, in my opinion, when I started was that we needed to operate as a business because the better the business does, the more women can be served and sales create jobs. So 100%. our ability to deliver yep. on our mission and hire women is based on our ability to sell products. Yep. And that, that took a couple of years really to shift that mentality and even shift it in terms of the expectation our community had about who we were. Uh, we were, you know, the organization was really small and though I didn't entirely realize it really in a financial crisis when I came. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so some of the things really were just the things that needed to be done to right the ship and then try to set us on a different path. I want to talk a little bit about actually what the program is, right? And, and sort of 
maybe what that looked like early on and, and what it look like, looks like now. So when people, mm-hmm. when people ask you sort of like what the women's being project is, right. Is it, do you give them a very short answer? Do, do you, cause it, it's very probably pretty hard to <laughs> encapsulate everything that it does into sort of like a quick one sentence. Do you have that pitch narrowed down or do you always kind of tell the elongated story of what it is and, and what it does? I think the most powerful thing when you're in a role like mine is to start with what we believe. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that all women have the power to transform their lives through employment. And so we hire women who are chronically unemployed and we teach them to work by making nourishing products. So then by starting with that, I think we are able to pique curiosity. So what does Mm -hmm. that mean? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, how do you hire women who are chronically unemployed and what does that mean? And how do you teach them to work? And so when you start with, but with that basic belief statement, it's hard to argue that, right? All women yeah. have the power to transform their lives through employment. And, and truly, I come to work every day because I really believe that when you change a woman's life, you change her family's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that that maybe fundamentally, that's what makes a social enterprise difference different is that you start from a stamp a place of belief and then you use the business to to fulfill that that belief when you have women that i'm gonna come knock on the door right or or apply what's Mm -hmm. that what's that process like can literally anybody sort of apply is there sort of do you guys work with with other nonprofit organizations whether it be domestic shelters or, or halfway houses What's the process look like for a woman that, you know, obviously wants to, to change their life and come to you guys for, for help? What's that process like for them? Well, they, they can come anytime during our business hours and apply for the job. We ask that they come here Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that's sort of the first step, you know, first step toward changing your life is taking that, that action toward change. So, and what we find is lots of people we interact with might know someone who they think could benefit Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. coming to the project. That doesn't mean that person believes that. And so they come here and they fill out an application. And then we starting in, in 2020, we'll be hiring monthly. Mm -hmm. So we, we gather applications until a couple of weeks before the hire date. And then we call them in for interviews. And what we're looking for during those interviews is a, a few things. They have to meet certain criteria. One is chronic unemployment. And that, what that typically looks like is that women we hire haven't had a job longer than a year in their lifetime. Wow. So what we find is the average age is 39. Mm. So it tends to be long histories of incarceration and addiction. Mm-hmm. Often she was a teen mom. Mm-hmm. Often she dropped out of school. You know, a lot of the things that will ultimately get in the way of her ability to get and keep employment. So we identify that, those criteria, but then also what we're looking for is readiness to change. And that's mm-hmm. probably the hardest part because what, you know, you and I might look at someone and say, gosh, if she's not ready to change, I don't know when she would be, but that doesn't mean she really is. And mm-hmm. this is not a place you can come and stay the same. This really is a place where someone needs to um, be ready to do the work to create a new life. And so what we're trying to do is create what we call a safe and accepting work environment where she can begin to address her barriers to employment 
And barriers look like a lot of different things, but what I know for sure is they don't come in singles. You know, nobody who comes here ever has just one challenge in terms of keeping a job. Right. She, you know, has low education levels and low skill level, and she's got trauma, a history of trauma. You know, she's maybe just coming out of the prison system and all of that that implies in terms of, you know, her self-esteem. She's maybe a recovering addict. And all those things get interwoven and get super complicated. And so what we are trying to do is bring her into this safe place and for a period of about seven months, we, are, we help her learn, her learn how to come to work every day and on time and take direction and pay attention to detail, you know, all things that you need as part of your employment journey. And then also we, we spend 30% of their paid time addressing their uh, soft skills. So we have a core curriculum where they're going to learn computer skills and mm -hmm planning and organizing and financial literacy and adult literacy and numeracy. We have a course where they can work on their GED if that's a possibility for them. And so we have this core curriculum that is really more about life skills and making them really, frankly, a better grown-up. And, you know, what that means is she's going to be a, not only a better employee, but a better mom and a better community member at the end. When, when that seven months is, is completed, what happens then? Is it, do, are they looking for another job with companies that, that you work with? Do they get hired by the project itself? How, how does that part work? And is it difficult when maybe after that seven months, it, it just didn't work out, right? Or, or is that hard to, I, I'm not sure how that would work, right? If it's not well, successful yeah. after seven months. Well, so uh, about 70% of the women graduate the program. Mm -hmm. And, and they all go on to jobs. So, uh, and, and right now the unemployment rate in Denver is about, I think, 2.9%. Mm -hmm. So there are lots and lots of jobs here. But even when there weren't uh, so many jobs, everyone was going on to jobs because we spend a lot of time helping the women identify what their career entry-level job is. And we call it a career entry-level job because it's going to be in all likelihood different from any other kind of job she's had. It's gonna right. be a job with an opportunity for advancement and right. benefit and where the employer cares that she comes to work every day. Right. And it's gonna be something that taps both her interests and her talents. So we spend a lot of time helping her prepare for, not just for the interview and that process, uh, but also what kind of job is, you know, is in your future. And one of the pieces of feedback we get consistently is that for the first time in her life, when she comes here, we're more concerned about her future than her past. Mm. And it, so we come at it from a standpoint of possibility, because what she's been told prior to coming here is about all the things she can't do. Right. So if she has a felony background, then she wouldn't be able to work at a bank or, or a school or a hospital. And so, you know, we, we know all of those things, but let's focus instead on what the possibilities are and all the employers and the kinds of work that she might be able to do. At, as she's nearing the end of her tenure here, we do a, an assessment called career scope. And what I love about that is they put in their interests and their aptitudes, and it literally spits out a list of job ideas. And, huh. you know, it's, it, it, it's so cool because it's all about possibility rather than right. limitations. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, I mean, it might be three pages long and it's all kinds of jobs that, you know, we maybe have never even heard of. Um, and so what's cool about that is just really approaching everything from a place of possibility rather than limitation. And that, so we have relationships with employers and we will, we cultivate those, but also we really want, we don't want everybody to go into the same job that may be suited for them or maybe not, but really to find what that career entry level job and that company looks like. That, I mean, I think the, one of the things you said a little earlier about the the training aspect that goes into it, I really looked at uh, the computer training as as obviously one of sort of um, the biggest uh, skills necessary. Do you see that being the number one skill that's needed when they go into the workforce? Is that some of the top tier questions that employers have is what is their skill set around, you know, a certain, you know, obviously, Microsoft, right, or, or Adobe. I mean, yeah. one of these platforms that many companies use. Well, it's it's even just earlier than that a familiarity with uh, with a computer. So mm-hmm. if you know, if you think about the average age of a woman we hire is thirty nine. Right. That means we have women in their fifties who weren't in school with any kind of computers, and so maybe she has a smartphone, but she doesn't right. know how to turn on a laptop. Right. And she doesn't know how to open a web browser or attach her, her resume to an email. Right. And so even before you think about the, you know, even specific software programs, just being able to navigate a computer in general is often the skill that she has to learn. And the reality is, as you were alluding to, is that every job requires some right. computer skills today. I, I think also what I've gotten to see in this job is really um, the the ramifications of our public education system. Mm, so great point. We do this adult literacy and numeracy course. And at the beginning, they take a reading level test. And our women typically test between seventh, second and seventh grade. So um, if, if someone comes here and tests at a second or say third grade reading level, getting her GED in seven months is not going to be realistic. Right. But, you know, and in some instances, somebody who tests a, a third, fourth, fifth grade reading level might have a high school diploma. And then when you think about what the possibilities are for someone with a third grade reading level, you know, and, and how, how we as, a, a commun- as communities can allow people to become adults and not get beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, so I think sometimes, you know, we are very clear on what our role is in the community, and yet we're, we're, we're enrolling or hiring women who are coming from other broken systems, and right. your education system is just one of them. Wow. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a really great point. Do you see, I mean, because it's such a, a really amazing opportunity, and I, I don't know of, of many cities that sort of have a system an organization, a business model like this, do you see people, uh, um, women coming from other cities just to knock on your door? Or is it just, you know, Denver citizens? Well, we're, we're drawing from the Denver metro area. Um, so, you know, there's sort of seven counties around Denver from which we draw. And I think that they become aware of us 
once they're in this community. So once mm -hmm. they're in a halfway house or they're in, gotcha. um, they might be in, there are two women's prisons in Colorado and one is in, in Southern Colorado and the other is here in Denver. And so they might be in prison in Pueblo and hear about us from other people. Mm -hmm. uh, but we tend to, and, and they might not originally be from here, but they're you know, here for a variety of reasons at this point. So they'll hear from us once they're here. Um, I don't know that as much the word spreads. What happens more often is we might have a graduate. We have one graduate from, gosh, close to 10 years ago who now lives in North Dakota. And one of the things she does sort of in her free time is she goes and does counseling and sort of um, prayer counseling in the women's prison in the town where she mm. lives. And so she often calls and says, when can we get a women's bean project up here? I was thinking uh, the same thing. Yeah. yeah, so that's more more common is, you know, uh, communities calling to ask how they might, um, you know, bring Women's Bean Project. And that's an interesting challenge for us. Yeah. Um, it, it's a question that, you know, I probably get a call or an email, you know, every couple of weeks. And from someone, you know, in you know, sort of fill in the blank city. Sure. What we've chosen to do, you know, we have national distribution of our product. And we're in about a thousand stores today and we do um we have lots of online relationships so we're shipping across the country and and i also recognize when someone says could you know you bring a women's bean project to fill in the blank city they're not saying could you help us learn how to make bean soup mix right they're really asking for that combination of the program Yep. operations and the business operations and how we balance those two. Mm -hmm. So what we've chosen to do is really try to serve in a more of a technical assistance role and be really involved in the field of social enterprise uh, and, and work together to build the field. And as at least at this moment in time, sure. how we make our contribution, you know, to other communities. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, <laughs> You're talking about a huge, a huge lift and and process to, um, you know, to go to another city without, <laughs> without with some type of, uh, of assistance from the local maybe government there, right, or or some type mm -hmm. of federal funding that that funds the expansion of, of the organization and, and the idea. So yeah, I mean, it's obviously I think that <laughs> this would be amazing to have and. <laughs> you know, a dozen cities across the United States, but, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of uh, hurdles that, that come with that, but let's talk a little bit about the successes, right? Because, you know, over past couple decades, I'm sure you've seen inspirational stories come through the door. Okay. I'm sure now mm -hmm. you, you have some, some great data to assess early on, maybe what not you got, not that you did anything, not that you did something wrong, but right. You can always improve things, right. With, with sort of, technology now you can sort of um, improve on what the data tells you from you know coursework that you guys do or what mm -hmm. products buy what products sell the best on the website so what are what have been some of the successes over the last uh, couple of decades that you've been there well one of my favorite stories is of a, the woman I referred to earlier uh, her name is Selena, and she came to us when she was just 21. So mm -hmm. that's our minimum age to okay. hire. And uh, when she was 12, her mom introduced her to cocaine. Mm. 
And okay. at 13, her mom kicked her out of the house because she thought Selena was competing with her for boyfriends. So at 13, she was on the streets and she couldn't stay in school because she didn't have a place to stay at night. And she couldn't work because she wasn't old enough to get a job. Mm -hmm. And so on the streets, sort of trying to figure out how to survive, she ended up with a group of people who are manufacturing and selling drugs. And she, you know, it was a, a rough crowd. And, you know, the, as she tells the story, she had a lot of experiences that you never want anybody to have, especially not a kid. And she, you know, did things like help, hold people up at gunpoint. You know, she was knifed one time. It was just a really bad existence. And finally, when she was 18, she was arrested. And that was probably what saved her life because right. it got her off the streets and it got her into the system to, of safety, frankly. So she spent from 18 to 21, she was involved in the correction system. And then at 21, her pastor referred her here. And so she arrived, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. She has right. long blonde hair and big blue eyes and, you know, totally looked like this innocent young woman. And yet when you heard her story, you realized that that wasn't the case. But she was so eager to make changes in her life. Mm -hmm. And so she came to work every day and she wanted to learn. She also had a third grade reading level. So she... Uh, enrolled in an adult high school to start to address that. And when she graduated the program, she went to and got a job at, a, at um, Safeway, a grocery chain. Oh, right. Yeah. And they taught they taught her how to count change, and you mm -hmm. know she got to be a cashier. And she had a supervisor who really sort of took her under their wing. And then um, eventually. Uh, was met the man that she married and, and they moved to North Dakota for his job. And now she has a six-year-old daughter. And what right. I think is so amazing is, that, you know, she really will break the cycle. Her daughter will have right. a totally different life. Right. And to me, that's the reason to do this work, right? Is to, you know, help someone make such significant changes that, that her daughter will never need us. Right. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great, I think that's a great barometer of success, right? Is, <laughs> is uh is breaking the cycle and you never have to see somebody's uh somebody's daughter right or yeah you know you just hope you get referrals from i mean what she's doing is incredible is she's you know donating her time to to refer right i mean to, to yeah. really to really voice you guys is uh work and and progress when when you guys hired during the year i, I guess up to this point is there a certain amount of a number of women that work at the Women Beating Project year round, or is that it all the numbers always circulate through the seventh month program? Well, we have uh, full time permanent staff. There are twelve of us. Okay. And then the the women are transitional employees. That's the uh, term for it. And by definition, they're working for us uh, for a period of time with mm -hmm. the intention of transitioning out. And in a year, we will hire about 60 of those transitional employees. And at any point in time, we'll have between 15 and 20 who are actually working within the business. So it, there is sort of a constant revolving door where we have new women coming in and being trained and you know, learning how our business operates, where they're working on the production floor and uh, they they might work in our shipping and receiving department, or we have a retail store at our location. You know, they're going to work in various aspects of our business operations. And then uh, the the idea is that they would have all of those experiences to draw from when they 
go on to the next job, but they are hired with the intention that they move on. We have right now one staff person who is a program graduate. And so she was hired when she graduated to be a, um, a supervisor on the production floor. And in a perfect world, we'd have lots of, um, we'd have lots of need for um, permanent employees who are program graduates. But we're, we try to keep our permanent staff pretty small so that it gives us the flexibility to hire more transitional employees. Right, right. And, in, and it all goes back to, to the business side, right? I think the more, the more product you can, you can sell to individuals obviously enables the program to, to, keep, to keep going yeah. and to keep making the impact. And the one thing we kept talking about is, is soup, right? But now you guys have a, a plethora of products from soup to coffee to dog treats, right? So yeah. it's not, it's no longer just sort of, you know, a, a one product, you know, company, what was that no, expansion? You're exactly right. What's that expansion like? Cause that, I mean, like not everybody eats soup, right? I mean, it, there's, I think it was incredibly smart to sort of, you know, you have to get to a certain point where you're able to add more products to the product line. But mm-hmm. when did that happen when you went from just, you know, 10 bean soup to, you know, dog treats, <laughs> you know, to coffee and stuff <laughs> like that? <laughs> Well, it's um, some of the expansion ha- has happened um, really over the past 20 years in that um, partly bean soup doesn't say summer as much as I try right, to convince right. people, you know, <laughs> chili dogs in August. Right, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, initially we started with things that would go with the soup. So cornbread mix yep, and cornbread, then things yep. you could have for dessert like baking mixes, brownies and cookies and those kinds of things. And so that was sort of the status when I arrived. We filled some other things because they were beans, like coffee beans and jelly beans and chocolate covered espresso beans. Mm -hmm. And those were always doing pretty well for us. Uh, A few years ago, we had the opportunity to uh, hire a company that does new product ideation for Mm -hmm. big companies across the country. And they sat with us and helped us see how people in our country eat has changed and what Mm -hmm. kinds of products are appealing to people today that really fit within our wheelhouse. We are a dry food manufacturer. So, um, you know, coming up with a product that would need to be baked is not, you know, does not make sense for us, but they identified about 10 different concepts. And so that is our new product pipeline. And that has um, helped us introduce things like popcorn with some with spices um, to go on them. So we have a variety of flavors. We have a biscuit mix with an icebox jam mix. So you put water in the jam and you cook it on the stovetop for four minutes and then put it in the fridge and you've got jam to go with your biscuits. We have rice and beans cups instant. And um, in the first of the year, we'll be introducing breakfast cups. So they're also instant, but you know, you could just grab it on your way to work and, and um, have it and you just add water to it and they'll, they'll be really some interesting flavors, like blueberry <laughs> chai and some fun stuff like that. But that, that was really um, a, such a huge opportunity to help us because uh, we could sit around all day and come up with ideas, but that right. doesn't mean they'd be successful or they'd resonate sure. with customers. So to have that pre-work done where they looked at the in the world and said, here's what might make sense for you guys to pursue. And then we can take that idea and develop it. That's the fun part. 
is, you know, it's sort of running with an idea and seeing what you can create. Has there, and, and so the, the women that are in the program, they're essentially doing the packaging, doing sort of the, the shipping, things like that. Is that sort of their role within that seven yeah. months? Okay. It is. And then also helping us fulfill uh, orders. So they'll work in um, the shipping department and learn the skills of picking and packing and, mm-hmm. you know, shipping and receiving, um, which is a, a great skills for them to have. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to kind of talk about the book you wrote, because uh, I, I think that I think it was a, the third law, correct? Is that the one that, yeah. um, yep, mm-hmm. that's the, that was sort of interesting when, when I read about it of, of kind of unemployment and how that sort of affects, like you, like you said before, when you change sort of a woman's life, um, you really change a family's life. And I think that, you know, from the people that I've talked to, um, just from all the interviews that I've done is that, that that's not an American thing. That's like a human thing and a global mm-hmm. thing, especially in, in the developing countries when, you know, women aren't allowed to, to work sometimes. Right. Or, or they, they're, you know, they don't even have a first grade reading level. Right. Um, yeah. when, when her life's changed in those areas, you know, the family's life has changed exponentially. Right. And, um, so when you were writing the book, did, did you, did you come out from a place of how you've seen unemployment affect people's, um, lives or was it more of, of how unemployment affects, um, an entire family? Well, I really came at it from a standpoint of seeing that even as the women who come here were working so hard to change their lives, there were still so many things that pushed back on that change yeah. and made it hard to, to create that change. And sometimes it was family members who didn't like the empowerment that she had because she was earning a paycheck. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, you know, what you were referring to in terms of that global sort of empowerment, when somebody earns their own money, it changes their mindset about what mm-hmm. they're worth. Mm-hmm. But it, so it was family members, but it's also the systems that they're in, uh, by definition involved with, mm-hmm. how, the, how the correction system dehumanizes people and then releases them and expects them to be human again right. without an on-ramp or wraparound services or things like that. And it was... So it was all those, all the things that I was seeing that I saw were pulling women back, even when they were doing what society was asking of them. And then it also came from a place of the fact that I over and over again would sit across the table from a woman and realize that the, that the only difference between us was the accident of birth. You know, I happened to be born Mm -hmm. to a white middle-class family in Colorado Mm -hmm. Springs. And Mm -hmm. I knew from the beginning that I was going to go to college. But how would my life be, have been different if I had grown up in different circumstances? And I think that humility of realizing that because of that, perhaps I had a responsibility to tell the women's story and to really change hearts and minds about what it means to grow up with, you know, both of your parents being addicts or, right. you know, your dad not being around and your mom going away to prison. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had women say to me, when I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who worked. Right. Well, so what do we think is going to happen right, in, a, in a family like that? How do you figure that out if you don't have the, those models as you're, as you're growing up? And so in my mind, I was really, when I 
I wanted to tell their stories and talk about all the things that I'd learned. And that was really the purpose of the book so that I could help other people see the things that I had learned um, and had really made me confront my biases and prejudices that I frankly didn't even know I had. Was uh, something you said a little earlier was interesting is that you kind of, when I think it was, uh, what was her, her name that now lives? Selena? Was it Selena who lives in yeah. North Dakota now? Where she, she came out of, uh, of prison, right? And, and into the sort of the Women's Bean Project. Is that, is that sort of the, the normal access is individuals have to wait until they get out of incarceration? Is there, is there a way you could work with the prisons to where you can almost get the 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 curriculum of sort of a head start, so to speak, right? Maybe if a person knows that they're getting out in 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 five yeah. months or something, to start maybe the process a little early on, to where it's like, I mean, they have the time, right? It, it's yeah. it, it seems like it would there. I, and again, I mean, I, there, there's a lot of different elements that go into. Uh, into working that type of project and, and program. So I, I didn't know if there was ever any uh, talks about something like that, that, or if it's even possible, right? Well, it's, that's really funny that you brought that up, Grant, because just yesterday we met with the um, executive director of the Department of Corrections for the state of Colorado, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. because he is working on, and right now they, so far they've only placed men, but doing um, work release, and within the last year of someone's sentence. And so what we were talking with them about how we might be an employer for mm-hmm. the last, within the last year of a woman's sentence to really tee her up for yeah. more success when she finishes. And so that is exactly the direction that at least Colorado's Department of Corrections is taking. We have also been trying to do in what's called in reach where we go in when the women have an out date so they know that they're going to be released and we've done interviews and actually hired women in anticipation of their release we haven't yet found that to be terribly successful in in that we're there the system is allowing us to come in but there's not a ton of support around making sure they get to us on that first day after they're out of prison and so we think that this solution of hiring them on a work release kind of situation where they're coming here daily to, to work and maybe returning to prison or returning to some other kind of housing is ultimately probably the better solution because then everyone can be supporting her in that transitional time. Yeah, yeah, so no, it's, that's, it's that's funny great. that you asked that no, because I mean, it it's... seems logical, but it's a big, it's a heavy lift in terms of systems change. Oh, yeah, look, anytime you deal with, you know, just government in general, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of hurdles, right? But then also dealing in the corrections area yeah. of, it is just, it's just a whole nother area of red tape's always the the easy word to say, yeah. but there there just is different, different hurdles and, and systems in place where it would, I'd imagine to make it difficult, but I mean, Colorado is one of the most innovative states really in the country right now over the last decade. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that that there's some innovate that there's some innovative people looking at these approaches and, and trying to figure out, you know, ways to 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 innovate a prison system, right? I mean, that's such a a weird thing to say, but it, it's just one of the systems, like you said, whether it's educational system or or 
correctional system, it, it kind of starts there as well um, with a lot of with a lot of these issues, right? With a lot of the women you see that mm-hmm. those two things have, you know, failed them in, in a lot of different ways and we as society as well. Um, but yeah. I wanted to to go back to something you said in the, in the very, very beginning about the uh, the social venture partners in, in Denver and a little bit about your time there and sort mm-hmm. of what that was like and what did you see from, because I, I think when I talk to a lot of, you know, startup founders or, or just startups in general and, and people in the social impact space, a, a lot of what they deal with is, is, is right. is sort of funding, right. And mentorship and they have great ideas. And sometimes they actually went as far and created a great product. Right. But that in itself is very tough to do. And then running their, their website, right. Their e-commerce or doing operations, mm-hmm. all these different things. It's, it's very difficult. And especially if you're a social impact company, you know, you have to worry about the impact you're making too. Right. And, and you know, you're working. Yeah with a lot of different partners on trying to, you know, sales have to be good, obviously, to make the impact you want to make. So just from sitting on sitting on that board and sitting in, in, in that arena, where you're sitting around people who have the capital to inject, what, what do they look for? And what did you guys look for um, sitting there and having stuff come across your desk? Well, I think a lot of times in, in SVP's uh, situation, they're looking for organizations that could use their health. So mm-hmm. they don't, necessarily want to um, go into an organization that has it all figured out because they have this cadre of professionals who have a lot to offer and in addition to the money that they're going to give these organizations they actually you know svp's model is to give the technical assistance so they might actually be more looking for organizations that need a lot of work to be running on all cylinders um, but what you're looking for is, you know, how does your, what is the governance structure in a nonprofit? Um, mm-hmm. What does your governance structure look like? If, are, do you have a high functioning board for oversight? Mm-hmm. Or is it still a friends and family kind of board that's really not, you know, paying attention to the numbers and, and things like that? You're looking for, uh, you in the, at least in the nonprofit world, one of the biggest challenges that nonprofits have is this mentality of scarcity that, uh, you know, it, it, they approach everything from that mentality of scarcity about, and it, it translates into, we can't pay our staff well, we can't, we're not worthy. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a, an illness I think the nonprofit sector has. And mm-hmm. so uh, often when you bring people from the private sector to look at at a, the operations of a nonprofit, they can bring a fresh set of eyes that helps you overcome. Hey guys, we actually, you don't have to have the desk that's falling apart. We can actually <laughs> get, you know, legitimate furniture. I mean, it's things as simple as that, or, you know, let's attract the talent that the organization needs right now in its stage of development, instead of trying to, you know, piece together, you know, people have a lot of heart, but don't actually have the professional skills to do the work. So it, I think it, it depends on the, the organization, but there are lots of different ways that groups like SVP can plug in and help. I do think that there's a bit of a tension there though. And mm-hmm. that is that often people from the funding side, whether mm-hmm. it is impact investing or it is SVP kind of groups, have, bring an arrogance to the situation, which is sort of like, Hey, all you people, just get out right. of the way because I know how to run a business. Right. 
Right. And 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 I think that um, and there's not as much appreciation for what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know and so I really. Um, prefer to look at the world from a place of abundance. Everyone has something to bring. And it's really, as the leader, it's really incumbent upon me to figure out what those things are and, and you know, match our needs with, with their abundance. And I think that doesn't happen as often as it should. You know, the, I've been in lots of, particularly earlier in my tenure at the Bean Project, lots of meetings where there was an assumption that because we were a 501c3, we didn't know right. certain things. Right. And and that's so that sort of puts you on opposite sides of the of the fence to start with, and that's never a good place to start from a relationship. Are you, are you still on the board at the Barton Institute at the University of Denver? I actually I they've just spun off and been become their own 501c3, so I rolled off of that board. But, uh, you know, that was the intention was that they were, you know, incubating within University of Denver. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. To become their own 501c3. Um, so what was it? So what was, was it a degree program? Well, no, it, they had a, they did a variety of different initiatives within the city. And their intention really was to bring, bring together resources mm-hmm. to do projects. And they also had a fellowship program within the University of Denver of graduate students from all the various schools. So it was really cool because those, those fellows would learn about social enterprise in the fall and then in January start a project with a social enterprise uh, who had applied to, you know, to get two fellows. And usually the fellows come from, say, one fellow might come from the School of Engineering and another one would come from the School of Social Work. Mm-hmm. And so those mm-hmm. two, cro- you know, cross-disciplinary um, fellows would work in a, on a social enterprise project. Um, yeah, so that their, the model of the fellowship was super cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I love to see universities innovate their curriculum <laughs> in, in social enterprise, social entrepreneurship. I think it's long overdue. Um, there needs to be programs at every single university, I think, that that concentrates on how we use business to solve the problems, you know, whether it's chronic unemployment, whether it's, uh, you know, education, um, solving hunger, solving poverty. I mean, I think there's business is the only way to alleviate all these problems that we have. And, and I think universities have a great opportunity. Um, they already have the structure in place of, of really you know, working with <laughs> projects like yours, right? We're working mm-hmm. with SVPs and, and figuring out a curriculum where, you know, the next um, entrepreneurs are, are coming into it um, wanting to solve a problem with the business they create. Um, yeah. I, I think that's the the shift we we want to take in the next decade to to really alleviate some of these problems rather than trying to, trying to depend on government to do it. I mean, that's just not what government does. You know, it's just not no. what... And it's we we need to move on from that and and really concentrate on in a hybrid system of of stuff like this to to really make to really make it happen. I'd love to see more students as they are finishing their curriculum actually go into social enterprises and sort of learn by doing versus immediately going out and trying to create their own. I think we have such Great fragmentation because point. everybody has their big idea. 
And when you're, there's a perception when you're, entre you're an entrepreneur, you have to start something. And I don't know that that's, maybe eventually you do, but I also think there's a ton you can learn by um, being a part of, of something that already exists. It's a great point. I, I, you know, I, I struggle with that all the time too. Me personally, I've struggled with that a lot is, is, uh, you know, sometimes being a part of something, um, you can have much more impact than trying to, to start something on your own. Um, there, there is sort of a beautiful dynamic with that when, you know, you have a team with us with a goal, right. And everybody has the same goal. I mean, it's just, it's very powerful and what can happen with that rather than trying to start, mm -hmm. start something on your own, especially at such an early age like that. Sometimes we think entrepreneurship, you have to fail to succeed, but maybe not, right? Maybe you can come out and, and really learn first. Yeah. Um, and then maybe well, and that failure learn, rate goes down. And Yeah. And I think that you learn by seeing things you don't like, right? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's easier to know what you don't want than what, it, than what you do want. But by going into a situation that already exists and learning all kinds of things, things that you love and things that you don't love and, um, and how, you know, even being able to conceptualize uh, from the, you know, you asked about, you know, lessons we've learned along the way, because we've made a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And the key isn't the mistakes, it's, I think it's how you recover from them. Sure. But if you're starting from, from scratch with, you know, no reference points, you you have to make all of your own mistakes. One right. of the things I often say is we've made 30 years worth of mistakes that we're happy to share <laughs> so that you can make all of your own mistakes. <laughs> That's your next book title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the last thing I'll, I'll ask is, um, are you still the interim CEO at the social enterprise Alliance? Yeah. It's only Man, been how do you fit the hours in the day? <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you know, you're... they're, they're very complimentary. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of the people I talk with, I would, you know, I would have a reason to talk with them uh, with respect to the Bean Project also. I think uh, there's a couple things. First, I will say that at the at Women's Bean Project right now, we have an, an excellent team yeah. and, and a group of people who, you know, frankly, on some level, don't really need me to be around. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully that's a credit to leadership. Right. But um, I would also say that it, it is good for Women's Bean Project and good for the field if we can ensure that Social Enterprise Alliance is a strong organization. Yeah. Can you explain it? Because I, I think, I mean, I know who they are and, and been a fan from afar for a while, but you want to explain a little bit about what they do and, and what sort of that alliance is and about and what, what it represents? Mm -hmm. Well, it is the member organization for social enterprise in the U.S. It's existed for about 20 years. It started as an annual summit, an annual gathering mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. social enterprises, and then eventually became a member organization. And I think it is at a critical juncture right now of figuring out what it means to be a member organization in, you know, 2020, mm -hmm. when we can all get information and be connected because of social media and, and other social platforms, we can be connected in lots of different ways. So the reason I uh, offered to step in as interim CEO is that we're really looking at how SEA is, is relevant as we go forward and really helps lift up the social enterprises. We know that we want that 
we are more successful when the social enterprises who are our members are successful. And ultimately how they impact their mission is through the sale of products and services by definition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've really honed in on how we might do that through, you know, by providing access to marketplaces or technical support mm -hmm. or, um, and we are focused in 2020, we'll be introducing a certification mm -hmm. for social enterprise because we're at a point in the field where there are lots of conversations asking about how do you define social enterprise? Right. Yeah. And I think certification helps solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah, it can. I mean, absolutely. I think if it's the, if it's obviously it's the right people putting the, putting that together, I think it's uh, a much needed thing. I mean, there are a few out there that, I mean, there's tons of certifications on labels these days, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. a ton of people that do a great job and, and what that they, what they do. Um, but I think especially this industry, it's sort of never really been defined and it's changing very rapidly and there's new ideas and, and new models coming out every year <laughs> that yeah. uh, it, it's a little overwhelming at times um, to really assess and put a definition on, on something. Um, but I, I think it's, it's always good for the consumer too, right? I mean, not just for companies and entrepreneurs. Yeah. Ultimately, and also for consumers and, you know, when you think about both corporate and government procurement, yeah. so all of those things and it, to be able to say that I have this, you know, our organization has this certification and therefore we qualify to be considered um, for this government contract or for this corporate, right. you know, service, or we have credibility in the marketplace because we are certified and we can demonstrate that we are doing what we say, you know, what our marketing materials say we're doing. Um, you know, I think it is a time where that level of accountability is, is sort of a societal expectation. And, um, and, and so I think they're, they're, we're ready for this certification, I think, in the field. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I know you're, you're obviously busy with, with all the hats you wear, but um I think it's uh it's an amazing journey you've been on so far and uh obviously nothing but but the best of luck going forward with with all the endeavors that you're a part of and uh you know I really people I really hope people um look at at the model that uh the Bean project has created and, and the impact it it has done thus far and, and really think about ways to implement that model in, into whatever they're doing so uh, appreciate your work and and appreciate the time Thanks so much, Grant. I really appreciate it.